Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast, everybody. I'm here with Terry Fakes, and we're going to do an overview of the book of Isaiah today. And I just want to say before we get going, these are becoming some of my favorite podcasts that we do. I love getting to walk through a book together, and the goal of it isn't just to talk about the books, although that, that part I think is fascinating. The goal of it is to equip you who, who are listening to this to actually read and engage the text in ways that maybe you haven't before. Maybe it's through the form of mm-hmm. just setting the scene or the stage, talking about themes to where once you're reading, you know a little bit more of what you're reading, especially in books like Isaiah, it feels easy to get lost in the middle of Isaiah. Or if it's answering questions that you've had about the book. So I, I feel like one of the things that we got the most feedback from when we walked through the book of Romans was we were able to at least touch on, as much as you can in in 45 minutes, touch on some of the major issues that can be obstacles when you're reading the book of Romans. Right. And I, I really hope to do both of those things today in the book of Isaiah. We'll see if we can keep it short, but that is yet to be seen. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> but uh, the book of Isaiah, first of all, comes at a very interesting point in Israel's history. And I think it's always important to dive into a little bit of what's going on in the world, what's going on in the life of of the nation of Israel when we study these books, not because it's ultimately determinative, but because it can be really illuminating for when you dive into something like Isaiah's prophecy right off the bat. So why don't you set the scene for us a little bit with what's going on at the time of the writing of the book of Isaiah? Yes, you know me. uh, I love maps. I love historical setting because one of my tenets of Bible teaching is that the Bible is happening in real-world circumstances, real people, real economics, real politics. Isaiah begins prophesying, uh, according to the book itself, near the end of uh, Isaiah. So let's call that about 740 B.C. He's going to prophesy till about 686 B.C., so 740 to about 686. But the main events in the book are going to happen between 740 and 700, so during that time period. They're coming off of a really golden age, if you will, in King Isaiah of Judah. Remember, we're in the divided kingdom period. There's the kingdom of Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and Isaiah is living in Jerusalem and he's prophesying mainly to Judah in the south. But they've come off a golden age, and they are powerful, and they are successful. They're coming into a time of the rise of the Assyrians in the north. In modern-day Iraq, their headquarters, their capital city is Nineveh. They are becoming an up-and-coming power, and they're putting pressure on Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel and Judah as they begin to move southward against Egypt, the great rich kingdom of the south. So Isaiah is looking at a political situation, but he's also looking more at a spiritual situation. And so he prophesies through the reign of Ahaz and then particularly Hezekiah. The northern kingdom, Israel, will be destroyed in 722 BC by the Assyrians. In fact, the Syrians and the nation of Israel will come to Judah and they'll say, look, let's all rebel against Assyria. Why don't you join us? And the king of Judah wisely says no. And so they decide they'll attack Judah, their, their brothers, if you will, the southern kingdom. 
And so Ahaz looks to Assyria and says, hey, would you come help us? And they do. They're looking for an opportunity to invade. And so they conquer Syria and they conquer the northern kingdom of Israel, which Isaiah is going to interpret and the prophets that are uh, in the same time period as him interpret as God's judgment on Israel's unfaithfulness. And so what you see is a tense geopolitical situation where little Judah is trying to remain independent and Isaiah is going to tie their independence, their prosperity to their faithfulness to God. So that's our historical situation in a nutshell. Yeah, one of the things I like to do when you get a historical introduction like that is is start to map out what else is going on in the world at this time or even what else is going on in the kingdom of Israel during this time. And one of the things that that helps us place this, so we don't know for certain when Isaiah was born, uh, but, but there's a rabbinical tradition that his father, Amos, was King Amaziah's brother. So Amaziah is the father of Uzziah, and then on down, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, mm-hmm. Manasseh. Now, we don't know if that's true. It certainly fits the time period correctly. And there are signs in the book of Isaiah that he is at least well acquainted with what's going on in the royal family. He has access right. to the royal court. He knows about the goings-on. He speaks with language that you would think somebody who has a pretty good education, who's kingly, would have. And so whether or not his uncle was Amaziah or his, it would make his cousin King Uzziah, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of that, that's the time period. So what that means right. for us as we look around the Bible is he would have been a contemporary, probably a slightly older contemporary of people like Elijah and Elisha. If, if you remember, he uh, is, is ministering in a different place, but he's... Things are happening around. Yeah, think Hosea, for example. I mean, a lot of us know the story of Hosea, the prophet, who was told to marry a prostitute. And it was a conviction of the kingdom of Israel that you've basically gone after other gods. Probably Isaiah is, is contemporaneous with that prophecy. And then, of course, you see the Assyrians executing the judgment, if you will. So if you were to if you were to kind of round out our description of Isaiah and his role in the Old Testament, he's coming off of the golden age of Israel and he's foreshadowing probably the darkest age in Israel. What happens right after Isaiah? Yeah, that's really that's a great observation, Cole. Uh, Isaiah is basically saying, look at what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel. They were unfaithful. They've been unfaithful for 200 years, and God's been sending them prophets, and look what he did. Now, you too, Judah, are turning away. And so he's, in a geopolitical sense, let me just shift there for a minute, he's basically challenging the people and the kings of Judah. Will you trust in your political alliances, or will you trust in God? So, for example, King Hezekiah, when the Assyrians are in power, he's going to listen to the Babylonians, another kingdom in the north, and they're rivals with Assyria. And so what Isaiah is going to say, look, are you, 
counting on your political alliances, or are you counting on God? And Isaiah is always going to come back to the idea that faithfulness to God is the only way to secure your future, which, of course, is a foreshadowing of the gospel itself. And so some of the playing out of the book of Isaiah, I mean, it starts with both condemnation of Judah and hope for Judah, because the question of whether or not Judah will be faithful is still up in the air. So I would say that uh, as it plays out after the time of Isaiah, they choose political alliances by and large. Hezekiah is an exception. He will see that in 701 BC, as recorded in Isaiah, he chooses to follow God at a very difficult political time. But after him, by and large, the kings of Judah do not. And so the prophecies of Isaiah of judgment come true. Now, as a literary whole, Isaiah is is kind of a masterpiece. It's the greatest of the prophets in the Old Testament. And if you if you look at the way that the Hebrew scriptures are arranged, one of the divisions of the Tanakh is the prophets. And Isaiah is the first and the greatest of the prophets. Exactly. And you see that in the New Testament as well. The, the background of the New Testament is built largely on the first century understanding of the book of Isaiah. So there's 57 different quotations of Isaiah across the New Testament. You look at the writings of someone like Paul, you look at John. Isaiah was the dominant prophetic figure and book in their mindset during the first century. Yes. Uh, As far as being a, a, a literary unit, it's composed of all kinds of different genres. You have songs, you have poems, you have narrative sections, laments, prophecy against nations, recommendations to the kings of, of Judah. Talk a little bit about the poetry of Isaiah. Oh, it's absolutely beautiful. In fact, can I just say with a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek that the entire praise song industry would be bankrupt if it weren't for Isaiah? Uh, That's very true. (laughs) Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. I mean, you see these beautiful passages. Uh, In chapter uh, 1, you see God saying, Come, let us reason together. Uh, Of course, Isaiah 53 and the suffering servant. and I mean, you see these beautiful poetic passages that are just beautifully rich and deep. Even if you didn't believe that Isaiah was inspired, even if you weren't a Christian, you could read this Hebrew poetry, and many people do, and see it as an absolute masterpiece of Hebrew poetry. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are so many passages, so many metaphors in the poetry. It is absolutely rich. Uh, I love the genre, the poetic genre of Isaiah. As a matter of fact, so many sayings that we have today come from Isaiah, we just don't realize that's where they come from. It has so pervaded Western civilization that standing on its own, even apart from its inspiration, it would be a remarkable book. Mm -hmm. And there are scholars who are not Christians and they're not Jews who study the book of Isaiah as as a monumental piece of literature from the ancient world. It, you, we could spend a lot of time probably going through the 
literary greatest hits of Isaiah. Probably you mentioned a couple of the most famous ones. His call is very famous in chapter 6, the here am I, send me line. Uh, Every Christmas we always read, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be in his shoulders. That's from the book of Isaiah. New heavens and new earth language is from Isaiah. Right. Uh, I mean, it's full of things that have come down to be some of the most significant portions of Scripture that we quote and that we that we know. The outline of the book is a little bit tricky. So broadly speaking, it's it's easy to say the major divisions in the book of Isaiah are chapters one through thirty nine compose a, a literary whole. And then chapters 40 through 66 comprise a different section. Now, one of the things that we need to talk about with the book of Isaiah is that in the scholarly community, in some circles, not every circle, but in some circles, there's some pretty heated dispute about who authored different portions of the book of Isaiah. So what's common is to say that that 1 through 39 is the original Isaiah, first Isaiah, son of Amos. And then starting in chapter 40, you actually get a couple of different sections. And scholars are not 100% aligned who take this view on how many sections there are. But, but the most common view would be to say that chapters 40 through 55 would uh-huh. be 2nd Isaiah. And yeah, chapters 56 through, yeah. through 66 would be 3rd Isaiah. And sometimes you hear 2nd Isaiah called Deutero-Isaiah. Right. So I think it's worth mentioning, because if you're going to read anything on the book of Isaiah, you're going to encounter this. And I I think it's worth mentioning why they think that. And then I think it's worth mentioning the alternatives as to why you and I would not hold that view, that it's that it's composed by different authors. So most of the the, the biggest reason, the most significant reason people would say it seems like there are different authors here is just. As you read the book of Isaiah, you realize in the first 39 chapters, everything takes place in a similar time frame. Right. You see the story about Hezekiah. He prophesies under the four kings that are mentioned in chapter 1, verse 1. Then all of a sudden in in chapter 40, it's almost like a Rip Van Winkle moment where you wake up and it's over 100 years later in the exile. So that would be after 586 B.C., and he's talking about things like the exile has already happened. That's the major reason. Now, there are some linguistic and syntactical reasons as well, but, but that's the major reason is you're going along and then all of a sudden you have a clean break and you're a hundred some odd years in the future. Right. Now, the reason that I wouldn't ascribe to that viewpoint would, would be the following. First of all, the book shows signs of being a literary whole. It has thematic continuity broadly across the entire book. It has stylistic integrity across the book. There, the 66 chapters show themes that run through the whole thing. It'd be one thing if you looked at the first 39 chapters and there was a narrative arc and stylistic arc and then all of a sudden that ends and something new picks up. But the end of Isaiah actually fulfills a lot of the things that he talked about in the beginning. It continues the storylines. It has the same voice. Right. The second reason would be the presumption that would lead us to deny that chapters 40 through 66 were written by Isaiah is based on the 
it's based on the view that prophecy doesn't really happen. Right. So in that, from that viewpoint, for things to be written as if the exile is in the past would mean that it has to be after the exile because nobody could know what things were like after the exile. Nobody could even know about the exile until right. after the exile. Well, we believe that Isaiah is a prophet. And one of the things that prophets do is talk about the future. That's not the only thing they do, but that's one of the things that prophets do. And so we would take chapters 40 through 55 and then 56 through 60 as being prophetic sections where Isaiah is speaking from the either early 7th century or, or, or late 8th century about what's going to take place in the next 150 years. And then at the end of the book, what's going to take place in eternity. Right. What's interesting is... He ends the book saying, God says, I'll create a new heavens and new earth. And he describes the new heavens and the new earth. But I haven't seen a scholar yet who thinks that Isaiah is in the new heavens and the new earth when that passage is being written. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> so the end can be prophetic, but somehow the middle cannot be prophetic. That, right. that assumption is not something that I share. So I think he's prophesying. The last reason I would give is the New Testament quotes Isaiah as if... Isaiah wrote the entire thing. And, the, and the, the best example of this is in John chapter 12. I'm just going to read a few verses. In John chapter 12, starting in verse 36, it says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so, so many signs before them, and they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. What we have here is two quotes from Isaiah that are from sections that scholars think are different portions of Isaiah. So the first quote is from Isaiah chapter 53 and John with the leading of the Holy Spirit attributes that to Isaiah. And then secondly, you have a quote from Isaiah chapter six that he also attributes to Isaiah. Right. And so one of the things that we have to think through is how the doctrine of inerrancy, if we're going to hold on to inerrancy, then we really need to hold on to the authorship of the book of Isaiah by Isaiah, because that's what John and Jesus and the Holy Spirit said about the book of Isaiah. So for all those reasons, and because there's no real reason not to believe it, I, I, I just go ahead and take Isaiah as written by one guy who's prophesying uh, during a specific moment in history about other moments in history. And the whole thing circulated from the very beginning as a whole, and I think we should read it as a whole. That's uh, a very good point you make. And just to add a couple of things, when you go to the uh, Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem, and I know you and I have been there together, you see the great Isaiah scroll. That scroll was written somewhere within 200 years before the birth of Jesus, and all 66 chapters are there in one scroll. Now, does that conclusive? No, but is it definitive? Yes. Because the arguments against Isaiah being one are based on the assumption that you pointed out that he couldn't possibly be speaking about the future. Well, that's true. He can't know the future, but he's quoting God telling him about the future. But if you uh, have that assumption, you have to assume that Isaiah 
could not have written all of it. The problem then that you have with that view is, why is it that even 200 years before Jesus, it was all 66 books together? And as you pointed out, it was always quoted together. It just doesn't make any sense uh, from a historical point of view or an archaeological point of view. It only makes sense from what I would call an ideological point of view. So I think the preponderance of evidence until we see something stronger than just literary evidence is that Isaiah was always written as one coherent work. Yeah, I think that's the best position. Well, let's move and get into the text a little bit. What would you say are the major themes of the book of Isaiah? Well, uh, a lot of powerful themes. One is the, I mean, it opens. You know, one of the things that impresses me about Isaiah is the way it opens. In chapter 1, you see judgment and hope both together. I would have expected something different than that. Uh, Chapter 1 starts, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. And so the book opens immediately with the idea of condemnation of their unfaithfulness, but it just intersperses, it's interwoven with hope. And so I think you get this idea of a remnant that even though there may be widespread unfaithfulness, that God has a remnant of faithful people that he will work through into the future. And so that's one Mm -hmm. of the first themes that jumps out to me. I would add another thing that becomes clear through the book is that God is the God of history. Yeah, He is the one who ordains the nations. He's the one that ordains the eras. He is guiding and controlling the flow of history. And he does that in ways that maybe seem odd to us. He, he predicts uh-huh. that he's going to use foreign peoples to judge Israel because of Israel's unfaithfulness. But his goal remains the same. In, in the early parts of the book, in chapter 2, verse 5, for example, he has this refrain. He says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Right. And as you see throughout the book, that is his goal the entire time. He is going to bring the nations of the earth to worship him and to know him. And the ways that he does that, we would never predict and, and sometimes are, are really difficult for us to grasp. But in the end, he's going to bring all the nations of the earth to worship before him and to be his people, and he's going to be their God. That's his plan. And Isaiah shows us that no matter what's happening, he is accomplishing that plan. Oh, absolutely. I think that's a, a powerful idea of God bending all of history to his will. And one of the interesting questions that comes up and one of the interesting ways that God does that is that he uses unrighteous nations like Assyria and Babylon to affect his will. And you'll remember that the prophet Habakkuk is going to question God about that and say, how could you use people more evil to punish your people? And I think that Isaiah makes it clear that you know, it's about God's people, and these other people are being used, willingly or unwillingly, to enforce and to bring out his temporal judgment, if you will. 
That's I true. Think, I, I think uh, one of the things that Isaiah shows us is the way that God uses his prophets to mm-hmm. speak into the history of Israel. Right. So we'll get to this when we do First and Second Kings, but the kings of Israel are not sensitive to the word of God. That's one of their main problems. Right. Is they listen to the word of man, they make alliances with other nations, they don't depend on God, and yet God brings about his prophets to speak to the kings, to draw the nation back to himself. And certainly in the book of Isaiah, what you see is a confrontation of the wisdom of humanity and of the nations with the wisdom of God through the prophet Isaiah. And your point's well taken, that God is the God of all history, because he typically in this era affects his judgments through geopolitical means Mm -hmm. as a way of teaching the kings that he is actually the God of geopolitics as well as the God of the temple, so to speak, and religious Mm -hmm. affairs. And I can't help but make this aside, and that is sometimes I think we forget that too. We think God may be the God of Sunday and God of church and God of prayer and Bible reading, but is he really the God of our business? Is he really the God of our nation? Is he really the God of the geopolitics of our world? And I think Isaiah Mm -hmm. is a timely book to remind us what you just said. God is the God of all history. Mm Mm-hmm. So if we dive into the first section, the first part of Isaiah, the biggest part of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 23 is, 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 is a good marker, but really 1 through 35 altogether, we have various prophecies to the nations. And if you're reading that section, I want to make two observations. First of all, it is the prophecy of Isaiah. That section, maybe even more than the servant songs later, are a great picture of what Isaiah was doing while he was alive. He was talking about the kingdom of Israel, mostly in the second half of that section, 24 through 35. He's right. talking about the nations of the earth from 1 to 23, and he is he is delivering God's words of judgment on those various entities. Right. The second observation I would make is that's a tough section to get through. Uh, it just seems like it goes on forever talking about <laughs> it seems Egypt yeah. and Tyre and Judah and Israel. And that could be a tough section to work through. What are your thoughts on that opening section? Well, the I agree with you. I mean, I think it's a difficult one to work through. Uh, to me, the opening section establishes the reality of God's sovereignty, if you will. I mean, stop and think about the fact that you are saying things like, I'm going to judge Egypt. I'm going to judge you. Uh, Come back to me. I've raised you like my children and you have rebelled. I mean, there is an implicit assumption of God's sovereignty in that. And so Mm -hmm. if you're reading it and you read that and you go, wait a minute, This presumes that God is powerful enough and he really can discipline Egypt. That would have been as hard for them to understand, I think, as for us to understand if God had said something like, I will deal with all the terrorists in the world and I will judge all the terrorists in the world. You go, really? Mm -hmm. They're so powerful. They seem to be able to strike at will. Maybe that's a bad example, but my point is that in and of itself, should have struck them with, wow, he's making a claim here that he's in charge of all of this. Mm-hmm. That's true. There, there are obviously really great portions of this 
uh, I just I just want to acknowledge that if you have trouble, you're not alone. Uh, one of the things I think is really really awesome about this section of Isaiah is you do get little bits sprinkled in that will be familiar. So you get the call in chapter six. Right. You get some amazing language in chapters one and two. Mm-hmm. In chapter seven, you get a narrative sequence where Isaiah goes and confronts King Ahaz. He says in that section, he predicts in that section, uh, verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel. Yeah. That's familiar. Chapter 9 is familiar. So you get a few sections like that. The other thing I think is really important about the oracles to the nations, which take place from chapter about chapter 13 through chapter 23, is that you're getting a very detailed look at what God thinks about idolatry. And it may be that we don't have the same kind of idols that they had back then, but our idolatry really hasn't changed. And so you can see in his descriptions of, of condemnation, the ways that these people have angered God and betrayed him and and departed from him, Mm -hmm. you can see a lot about the human heart, about the human soul, about the ways that nations function. So there's a lot of reading that we can do in that section that if we'll dig a little bit is still extremely relevant and important to our lives today. Absolutely. You make a great point there that uh, the idolatry that he condemns in the other nations is timeless. The second thing mm-hmm. I would say is these prophecies, we tend to think of, well, he probably just stood on a little village and said this stuff. This stuff went worldwide. I mean, it, think about him posting this on his Twitter. In other words, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is making judgments on Israel, uh, on Egypt, for example. In Egypt, the Egyptian leaders hear this and they go, you've got to be kidding me. This little country's God is making judgments on us. And then when these things come true, they're just huge validations of God's judgment on the gods of the nations around Israel. I Mm -hmm. I think we sometimes think this was a local thing. It was not a local thing. That all the other nations heard about the hubris or the chutzpah, if you will, of the God of Israel. And when it came true, the whole world could see there truly is a God in Israel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to connect what you're saying back to the bigger framework of Scripture. It's easy to forget in the Old Testament that the promise and the plan all along is that God is going to fulfill what he spoke to Abraham in the book of Genesis. That right. he is going to bless the nations of the earth through the people Israel. Now, Israel yes. doesn't do very well at fulfilling that role in certain times. and In right. fact, they never fulfill that role very well. But that's God's plan all along. And so one of the lenses that you want to read the Old Testament through is how is God working to accomplish his promise to Israel and through Israel to the world? And there's a passage I want to read in Isaiah 25. This is one of those instances where the theme of Isaiah is the same through the entire book. This, this passage from chapter 25, you could almost just pick up and place in chapter 65 if you wanted, and it would go perfectly. He says in chapter 25, verse 6, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of a food rich, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Mm. It will be said on this day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, this is not a prophecy to Israel. This is a prophecy about all the nations of the earth. Right. And they're going to participate in this. And, and it, should, it should jog your memory of passages like when Isaiah says later, hey, come buy, even if you don't have money, come buy bread. And, and then in the book of Revelation where it says, right. in that day, God will wipe away every tear from their eye. This, exactly. this is the storyline of, of the Bible. And so while it's easy to get bogged down in some of these prophecies, it ties into what God is doing throughout every book of your Bible. And that's important to remember when, when you're in those sections that are a little bit more difficult to read. Absolutely. I mean, the fact that Isaiah writing in, say, 700 B.C. is his message from God is encompassing everything to the second coming is pretty powerful if you think about it. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of prophetic foreshortening, meaning he's prophesying things that will happen relatively soon, like Cyrus, for example, and the Persians within 150 years. And he's talking about wiping away every tear, which is the end of times. I mean, mm-hmm. it's an amazing book in, in that sense. So starting in chapter 36, we get a, an extended section of narrative that takes place in the time of King Hezekiah. And this is where you get some overlap between the book of Isaiah and the book of 2 Kings. Right. In fact, some of, the, some of the sections in this portion of the book are almost word for word the same. And it begins when Sennacherib comes and lays siege to the city of Jerusalem. For the next few chapters, we see some really, really interesting stories about the history of Israel. But it, And I want you to comment on that. But the thing that I always find interesting about this section is you forget in the first half of the book of Isaiah that he's a historical person living in a specific date and time. And now all of a sudden you see him just walk right into the (laughs) king of of Judah and give him a word from the Lord. Yeah, that's amazing. You you see him as this prophet and he's talking about all these things at, let's just say, 30,000 feet, so to speak. And then the next scene, he walks into the palace of Hezekiah in the middle of a political crisis, an existential Mm -hmm. crisis. I mean, literally, the Assyrians are come to wipe you out. And here's Isaiah to advise King Hezekiah. I think you're right, Mm -hmm. Cole. It's amazing to see how it comes from the big picture right into real life, which, again, as an aside, I think that's true of God with us. God... I mean, obviously teaches us a lot of things. We go to church, we hear sermons, and we hear about God's love and repentance. And But then we go out on Monday through Friday, and things happen to us. And sometimes I think we don't realize that God is actually there in the literal events as well. But yes, he walks into Hezekiah in the midst of a political turmoil. I mean, the Assyrians are prepared to absolutely destroy them. And he basically presents to Hezekiah. You could tell more of this story if you want, because there are so many fascinating parts of this story. But basically, in 701 BC, the Assyrians show up at Jerusalem and say, 
you know, you should surrender because we've destroyed everybody else. And if you don't surrender, it's going to be really bad for you. And Isaiah says to Hezekiah, you need to trust God rather than your political advisors. And Mm -hmm. uh, to Hezekiah's credit, he goes and prays to God and decides, I will trust in God. Yeah, that's just such an amazing, such an amazing story. I'll just let everybody read that one. Some of it will be familiar to you, but the, the whole dialogue with Hezekiah, with the foreign armies, with the geopolitics of that, that is, is just a, a fascinating story. But you know um, what? I'm looking at my, my, my notes here. I wanted to add this in, but it's in the, it's in the previous section. This uh-huh. is just a fun fact about the book of Isaiah, maybe for, for your Bible bowl. So the longest word in the Bible is in the book of Isaiah. And it's in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3. And it, it is the name of Isaiah's son. Child. Yeah. Child. Yes. Maher Shalal Hashbaz. It means hurry to the spoils or he has made haste to the plunder. And it is the longest word in the Bible. Yes, and you know that when that little boy grew up, he could never fit his name in the blanks that they gave you on the credit card application. Oh, yeah, and standardized tests, I'm sure, were a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, bringing this back to real time, though, I mean, Hezekiah's challenge against literally, I mean, literally overwhelming enemies. And then you and I did that interesting interview with Yehuda, our uh, Jewish Mm -hmm. guide, from Israel, and he was talking, and we were talking a little bit about the Jewish battle for independence or the 1948 war, and how even secular Jews, I mean, even Jews that aren't what we would call Orthodox or ultra Orthodox, look at that and they say, there was no way Israel could have, should have won that war. It had to be God intervening. And does that not seem to you like a Hezekiah moment? Mm-hmm. It really does. And that's one of the cool things about when you learn the history of Israel is it may not be quite as profound. It may not be recorded in the same way, but you get a sense for what it must have been like in the yes. days of Hezekiah when the Babylonian army was on the doorstep. Yeah. No, it's, it's amazing to me that the foreshadowing in Isaiah comes true in many different ways. Obviously, with the Messianic prophecy, and I don't know if you're ready to get to that, but it just seems like the whole book is infused with prophecies about God's ultimate solution, the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Probably one of the most familiar sections of the book will be in, from chapters 40 to 55. This is where we find the servant songs in Isaiah. These are four songs, although the entire section is really dominated by by this picture. But these are four poems about the suffering servant, the Messiah of of Israel. That's probably going to be one of the most familiar parts of the book to most people. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, Isaiah 53 and a little bit before that in 52 is uh, the idea of the suffering servant. You know, one of the things historically is the Jewish rabbis, the Jewish sages through the ages had a hard time reconciling the idea of the Messiah as son of David, conquering king, Mm -hmm. and suffering servant as was portrayed in Isaiah. 
And obviously now we are privileged to see that Jesus indeed was suffering servant. He will come in the second coming as conquering king. But they were really wrestling with those two portrayals of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And that tension exists in the book of Isaiah. So the first servant song is in chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Yeah. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Even in that passage, you have the tension of the conquering king and the gentle and suffering servant. And that goes through all the, the servant songs, especially as you get to 53, where we see a, a description of the cross. We see the description of the crucifixion of Christ, some some haunting language about what's going to happen yeah. uh, when Christ comes to the earth. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wound for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. I mean, it, you could just go on and on and on here, but th- this is this is language about Christ that we've come to be familiar with that was spoken nearly 800 years before Christ was born. Yes, and you know, uh, if I could take a minor detour here, a lot of people ask me, why do Jews today, how can they read this and not see Christ? Well, one of the ways, I mean, obviously the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox believe that there will be an individual Messiah coming, and Jesus was not that person. But probably more prominent is to read passages like this and apply them to the nation of Israel. For example, think about the Holocaust and how Mm -hmm. the Jewish people suffered. They might read Isaiah 53 and apply it to the Jewish people throughout history. Now, I'm not telling you that's good hermeneutics or it's the right way to read it. Obviously, I don't think it's the right way to read it. But people ask that question, and I simply want you to know that that if you don't accept Jesus, and you have to start at that assumption because Jews today obviously do not accept Jesus as the Messiah, then you might read passages like this as being about the Jewish people as a whole. Mm-hmm. You know, and in New Testament theology, that's not that, that's not too far off. What we see in the New Testament is Jesus is true Israel exactly. in himself, the way that we see the Messiah. In himself, he is what Israel should have been, the faithful, obedient son, the gateway to blessing the nations. And so in some ways in our New Testament, we're doing what they do today, but we locate it in the work of a Messiah who came and died and was raised from the dead versus some of them have the expectation of a Messiah. Some of them, though, just have the expectation that... uh, they actually will usher in a messianic age and that there won't be an individual messiah, but the nation of Israel will function that way in in eternity. And so there's some really interesting tensions that go on there with with all the various groups and sects and and beliefs among modern Jews. And if I could throw in here how that applies to our political situation. 
Mm-hmm. If you were in the second category and you think that the people of Israel, the Jews, are going to usher in a messianic age of justice and righteousness, then that takes tends to take on political elements, which for you and for me, as we understand Jesus Christ as ultimately saving humanity eternally, it does not take on such a, a political dimension. But you'll see in certain Christian circles, there's a very politically charged environment. Right. That's definitely true. So that's a fascinating section. And then the book ends with chapters 56 through 66. And the theme of those sections would be new heavens, new earth. Um, The hinge point for this is really at the end of chapter 55. 55 is a really famous Mm -hmm. section. It begins, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come by and eat. Uh, This is also the section where it says, uh, seek the Lord while he may be found. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, in in verse 8. It says, as the rain and snow come down from heaven, do not return there, but water the earth. So my word goes out, it shall not return to me void. In 10 and 11, you shall go out and enjoy. I mean, the mountains and hills will break forth into singing. This might have the most famous verses per capita in the book of Isaiah. That's a good point. Chapter 55, but it transitions into 56 through 66, where Isaiah is giving a vision of the new heavens and the new earth in eternity with God. Right. The, the, the famous passage there, or at least one of them, is the, is the prophecy that Jesus says is fulfilled in himself, which is in chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the day of judgment of our God. So that, that's one that we see actually in the Gospels. But uh, so many of these passages actually color the, the prophetic sections of the New Testament as well. Exactly. I mean, Jesus himself understands this passage to be referring to his ministry. And one thing in uh, the last part of what he quotes, verse 2 of chapter 61, Jesus quotes, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops there in Luke mm. chapter 4. And he, because he said, I didn't come to condemn the world, I came to save the world. But then in the book of Revelation, when you see the second coming, he fulfills the next part of that verse to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance or judgment of our God. Mm -hmm. And so you do indeed see the Messiah as a suffering servant and as the conquering king, as grace and as truth and judgment. I mean, I just think that they could not have seen this, but we are so blessed, as the book of Hebrews says, to be able to see what they have always wanted to understand. Right. That's exactly right. Well, the final section of this book, I think, is worth mentioning before we wrap. Uh, In chapter 65... Verse 17, he says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Now, we don't get language like this before this in the Old Testament. This really is a a new portion of God revealing his plan 
the plan that we see in the New Testament was was there before the ages began, but right. it's just being revealed in this moment of what eternity is going to be look like. And, and I don't want to get into all the stuff about heaven. We probably should just do a, a podcast on that right. uh, by itself. But the picture that Isaiah gives of, of heaven, or what we would refer to as heaven, is a little bit different than what we usually think of, isn't it? It really is. And you know, in, in accordance with the prophetic tradition, there seems to be an emphasis in this time on justice and righteousness protection of the oppressed. For example, in verse 25, you see the wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. Uh, The idea there being there's no more of this predatory lifestyle that's part of the fallen humanity and the part of the fallen Mm -hmm. universe. And so I think a lot of times the heaven is portrayed in the prophets as God making all things right, meaning all people are treated right. So you're right. That's not something that we tend to think of heaven as being as justice and righteousness. But if you stop and think for a little bit, that has to be true. If it's not true, you really don't have an answer to the problem of how do bad things happen to good people, for example, the theodicy problem. And Mm -hmm. so I think the prophets are valuable to us in that heaven's not you know, wings and harps and sitting on a cloud. Heaven is the place where truth and righteousness prevail. And there's a deep sense of rightness about that. And I love Isaiah, that that's the way that the end times are are portrayed in Isaiah. Mm -hmm. And the focus, I think, you, you see the new heavens and new earth, you also see a picture of hell and this image is going to be taken up in the New Testament. The, the last words of Isaiah are not rosy and, and positive. <laughs> I wondered if you were going to quote those words from 66. Yeah, it's, it's not the ending that you maybe hope for, uh, or at least it's a head fake from where you thought he was going. So he spends these two chapters talking about rejoicing and Jerusalem, and then he turns at the end. And in verse 22, he's going great. He says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. You're like, we could have just ended there. Yeah, beautiful. But no, he goes on and he says, And they shall go out and look upon the dead bodies of all the men who have rebelled against me, for the worm shall not die, the fire shall not be quenched, and there shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And that's where he ends. <laughs> I mean, does that remind you of Armageddon? I mean, it, it really it, is consistent with the book does. of Revelation, but it's not how you're expecting the book of Isaiah to end. Right, and there's something to be said for that. It's, it's sometimes you hear people talk about the prophets and the new heavens and the new earth, and it's easy to slip into a focus on the good parts of that and dismiss some of the warnings in the New Testament about judgment eternal damnation, things like that, which which none of us want to talk about or celebrate, but they're in the text. And Isaiah leaves us with this picture of eternal joy and happiness for the people of God. But he reminds us that those who oppose God, as well, we would say now, those who do not accept the gospel of what Jesus came and, and did, right. they, will, they will be separated from God and they will be punished. And so that's a sobering note to end on, but I think there's something really significant about the fact that Isaiah mentions that. I and, and this is part of it. 
He's standing on the doorstep. He knows he's prophesied that Israel itself is going to be destroyed, utterly destroyed in the next hundred years. Right. And yet he knows that God is going to be faithful to Israel inside of, in the sight of eternity. Uh, well, our situation is not that different. Exactly. We don't believe a gospel that God is going to immediately make everything better and everybody is going to live happily ever after with God like nothing bad ever happened. In fact, right. we, we believe a gospel that says God is going to redeem the world. We're realistic about pain and suffering, and we're also realistic about judgment. Right. And I think yeah, that's I, not our favorite way to end, but it's it's a powerful way to end. Well, it's the only adult way to end. I mean, I really, and this is a soapbox, I think this pseudo-gospel that's so very popular today amongst, I mean, it's the idea that God loves everybody and it'll all turn out in the end. Now, that's not a Christian idea, and I'm not saying Christian churches are preaching that, but it's a very popular idea. And Isaiah rebuts that, because honestly, if you think about it for a few minutes, who could honestly believe in that God? That God Mm -hmm. doesn't have the power to set things right, as N.T. Wright would say. That God doesn't have the power to punish evil, which is what the souls of all of us cry out for. So I really think that Isaiah ends the book in a very adult way and says, here's the reality of existence. Mm -hmm. You have a choice to make. You have a path to follow, which is so consistent with everything in the New Testament. Jesus himself said, you know, there's a narrow gate and a wide gate, and those who trust in me will have eternal life, and those who don't will be in the outer darkness. I mean, to me, Isaiah is very consistent with everything the New Testament's going to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, as kind of my final thought on the book of Isaiah, I would say if you want to understand your New Testament, read the book of Isaiah. Absolutely. He is the, the preeminent background. Maybe Isaiah and Deuteronomy together are the preeminent background for what's going on in the New Testament. To get inside the mind of of what Christ was teaching, to get inside the mind of what Paul was writing, to, to get inside the mind of what John was writing and prophesying, you have to understand the framework of the book of Isaiah. And while it can be a daunting book, uh, it's also a beautiful book and a powerful book. It's one that's relevant. It's one that is enjoyable to read. And I would encourage everybody to take another trip through, whether that takes you four or five days or four or five months. I think it's worth the time that you put in to study it, not just for its own sake, but for reading the entire Bible. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.